I think this is like the big misconception that everyone has about conception when we're growing up is that you can basically get pregnant in a flash. And then when it comes time to actually try and have a child, you're like, wow, this is not really as easy as they told me it was. And so, yeah, there's this big sort of reframing and reshifting your brain has to do. I'm Casey Main, a jaded, hopelessly romantic, health-conscious party girl searching for meaning. And my mission is simple, to make life better for myself and for you. I believe real change always comes from within. And the Better You podcast was born to discover hidden parts of ourselves and our stories. A safe place where we have real, honest conversations with people from all walks of life to help better understand ourselves so we can become better versions of ourselves. So come along on this journey of discovery with me so you can become a better you. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Better You Podcast, where our focus is better understanding our relationship with ourselves. I am your host, Casey Main. Thank you so much for being here. I know there are tons of podcasts out there, so I just so, so, so appreciate you deciding to listen to mine. This is the second new episode that we've had this week. As I had mentioned in the last episode, at least for the time being, as so many of us are stuck at home, social distancing and events are canceled and restaurants are closed and it's just super crazy times right now, I'm going to start releasing two episodes per week. I figure it's really the best way that I can help through all of this, which is to bring you all more conversations to try and help take your mind off of all the external stress and instead focus back on yourself and things that you can control. And luckily, I tend to get a little bit uh, overzealous with this whole podcasting thing. And there are just so many fascinating people to talk to that I end up recording episodes faster than I air them. So I figure why just hold all these great conversations on my computer and only release them once a week, especially when we all have a bit more extra time on our hands these days. So I'm going to release two a week on Tuesdays and on Thursdays. And I'll do this until I either can't anymore, like if I run out of shows or when things finally and hopefully settle back to normal. All right, so this week we are going to start by reading another five-star review, which I forgot to do in the last episode. Oops. If you can, please take a moment to leave a review for the podcast. It helps in so many ways. It helps me know that I'm bringing you all content that you enjoy, and it helps a ton with the podcasting algorithms that really determine whether or not people browsing through their podcast app ever see your show. Okay, so this week's review is from Nick Benz, and it is titled Better Sex. I loved the episode with Asharna and her accent. I've listened to it more than once. It's so refreshing and awesome to know that there are people out there who are making changes to all the preconceived notions that I grew up with. She really has a soothing yet energetic vibe that isn't preachy or fake. I love how she addresses all the spectrums of what makes us human, including all genders and or fluidity in a non-judgmental and open way. I listen to a lot of podcasts and these options usually aren't talked about or even mentioned. Definitely check it out. Even if you think you're a God in the bedroom, you'll learn or want to explore more. Thank you so much for that review. I absolutely loved 
the episode uh, that that review is referring to. I got so much great feedback from it. I've listened to it a couple times myself. And so it's episode 24 or episode 34, Live Your Best Sex Life with Asharna Walsh. If you haven't listened to it yet, definitely check it out. And that episode actually came with a giveaway, which is several fun toys from Cal Exotics. And that giveaway runs through March, so there's still time to enter. And I actually, I haven't gotten as many entries as I was expecting, so you definitely have a good chance of winning, especially since there will be six winners. That's right. I have six sex toys sitting in a box right on the floor next to me um, with somebody's name on them. And all you have to do to enter is to write a review for the podcast and then take a screenshot of it and send it to me via email or any social media channel so I know that you want to be entered. Or you can share episode 34 on your Instagram and tag me and the podcast so that I see it. That's it. That's all you have to do. And trust me, you want one of these toys. They look pretty amazing, especially since we are all social distancing and spending a lot of time at home, either alone or with your significant other. This will really spice up your quarantine, which is a nice segue into this week's episode about fertility. I have no doubt that we will see like a little coronavirus quarantine baby boom in like nine months. And while that's amazing for those couples, unfortunately, there are too many couples out there who are struggling to conceive and it really just breaks my heart. I have not experienced this personally, but several people close to me have. And so I really wanted to bring someone on the show to really just explain and break down fertility, like how it works, what impacts it, and what you can do to increase your chances of conception if you're trying to get pregnant. Or I guess on the flip side, what not to do if you're trying not to get pregnant. Okay, so this week's guest is Dr. Elizabeth Kane. She is the chief scientific officer at Natalist, where she heads up product development and R&D. She develops new products and educational content that serve people at an important time in their lives when they are creating a family. She earned her PhD in biological and biomedical sciences from Harvard University and her BA in biology from New York University. And in this episode, we talk about the rate of fertility and how it has changed over the decades what exactly your fertile window is and when it happens, how age impacts fertility, common lifestyle factors that negatively affect your chances of conceiving, what you need to do to increase your chances of getting pregnant, and common myths when it comes to fertility. Now, as you'll hear in our discussion, one of the things that she strongly advises is to significantly reduce your exposure to endocrine disruptors that sadly are all too commonly found in our beauty and bath products. These chemicals, so like parabens, they actually mimic hormones in your body and therefore disrupt your endocrine system. And if you're trying to get pregnant, the healthier hormone levels is super important. There is a fantastic and free app out there. It's called Think Dirty, where you can actually scan in your products and then see if there are any toxic ingredients in them. This app has been a total game changer for me because you can't always trust the packaging that says natural or organic. Sometimes it's just marketing. So to make it easier for people who are looking to switch over to truly cleaner products and remove all of these terrible endocrine disruptors from your routine, I've actually compiled a list on the shop page of my website, caseymain.com shop. 
And there you'll find everything from hand soap and body wash to deodorant and face products. They are all clean. They're all Think Dirty approved. And they are all things that I use personally, have been using, and just very highly recommend. And many of them come with discounts for being a listener of the show. So definitely check that out. All right. So that is it. We're going to go ahead and jump into this conversation about fertility. Okay. So I think let's start with your background and like your role. Sure. So I'm the chief scientific officer. So I do everything from product design from top to bottom. I write a lot of our scientific content and I sort of, I'm a late liaison between us and the scientific community at large. So just thinking, what can we be doing to bring in what's sort of like cutting edge in fertility research and bring it to Natalist? Okay, very cool. What is what is your background in? I have a background in scientific research. So I have a, a PhD in biological and biomedical sciences from Harvard. And I ran a research lab at Harvard for uh, a while. And then I left and came to Charleston and met Hallie. And we started Natalist together with uh, Nas, our chief medical advisor, who's an OBGYN. Okay. Why fertility? Is that something that always interests you or is that kind of what you were researching before? No. So actually my background before I researched something pretty different. So I did basic neuroscience research. So I wanted to understand how the brain worked and how it generated behavior. And I kind of had a like personal shift when I had my daughter and it just became more personal to me. I really wanted to um, move and help women. And, you know, I have, I have a very broad biology background and, you know, my scientific foundation is strong enough that I can move and do this. And so I'm really helpful. I'm really helpful and passionate about this and I, I can make a meaningful difference here. Okay. Very cool. All right. So one question I, I have is I'm just curious if there has been, all right. So I have not dealt with the fertility world personally. I have not tried to get pregnant. I'm still in the phase of life where I'm trying to not get pregnant, but I know a lot of friends, family, just a lot of people who, you know, got all excited and we're going to start trying. And then it ended up being much more difficult for them than they were expecting. And so I'm just curious if there's been an increase in fertility issues or does it just seem that way because we're now finally talking about it and it's more out in the open than it ever has been before? Yeah, I think this is a really good question. So both of these are actually true. If we look at how the birth rate has been changing since say the 1940s, the US was actually most fertile during the baby boom about 1957. Since then, fertility in the U.S. has actually been steadily decreasing. And by 2002, we're actually down from our peak fertility by about 44% across all ages. And so this broadly means we're having fewer children across the board. And part of the reason behind this is because we're having children later in life. Mm. And and so the average age for first-time moms in the U.S. has been steadily increasing. And this means, you know, we're having fewer children overall because it's harder to have more children 
as you're having children later in life. So if you look at fertility rates just for for women 30 years of age and older between 1980 and 2002, you'll see that those are actually going up, even though fertility rates overall have been declining. And this shows us that, you know, in fact, women are waiting later in life to have kids. And the average age of a first-time mom now is actually 26. And in the 1970s, it was 21. Oh, um, wow. and in de- Yeah. And in developed countries like the Netherlands, it's actually as high as 30. And we know that fertility de- decreases with age. So as we believe that the age we're having kids, we're more likely to experience fertility issues. And luckily, assisted reproductive technology, ART, like IVF or in vitro fertilization can help a lot of people, but it does have its limitations. So I think, you know, that's the science behind why I think fertility issues are popping up more and more. I also think the other hand to this is that people really are more open to sharing their stories these days. I think there was a lot of stigma in the past around infertility and and those walls are coming down. And I think at Natalist, it's definitely something we want to champion and we really want women and individuals to own their story whatever it looks like if it's smooth sailing or not Um, and certainly in everyone at the company we've had everything from a very easy journey to pregnancy to very difficult and we want to you know represent all families and their story no matter what it looks like yeah I love that and I I just think that's so powerful because I mean, I'm just, I'm a big believer in sharing our stories in in any regard, but, and again, I have not personally experienced this, but I had some people very close to me go through a really hard time and watching just the emotional roller coaster they were on. And then I, I know there was a level of like, you blame yourself and you think there's something wrong with you. So the more women and and families share their stories, like the more you start to realize there's nothing wrong with you. Like this is, this is more normal than you realize. Like there isn't, it isn't just you, like you aren't alone in this. Exactly. Yeah. And one in eight women experiences infertility. So this is, it's very common these days. Okay. So I want to go back to um, kind of some, some basic education because like, I feel like, you know, we, we grew up it, as soon as we became sexually active, really just thinking, oh my God, like anytime I have sex, I'm at a high risk of yeah. have, of getting pregnant. And it was just, you know, for so a big chunk of our lives, like our mindset was don't get pregnant, don't get pregnant. You could be pregnant at a moment's notice. And I just, and as I've gotten older and realized, okay, that isn't quite the case. Like you think about all the time you spent stressing out probably for no reason, but can you walk us through kind of like a high level of what is like the conception process and kind of what are some of those main barriers or hurdles, I guess, that like the sperm and egg have to go through like along the way? Like how how complicated is it actually? Yeah, I think this is like the big misconception that everyone has about conception when we're growing up is that like you can basically get pregnant in a flash. I mean, that was really what I thought, too. When I was, you know, like 15 and 16, when you're going through sex ed, and they're basically like, don't ever have sex, you will get pregnant. And, you know, they give you these, this like fear mongering style of like sex ed. And, and then when it comes time to actually try and have a child, you're like, wow, this is not really as easy as they told me it was. And so, yeah, there's this big sort of like 
reframing and reshifting your brain has to do. And so if you think about when you're actually fertile, you're only fertile six days out of your cycle. And that six day period is called the fertile window. And that, that period ends on the day of ovulation. So five days before you ovulate and the day of ovulation is your fertile window. And so, you know, you really think, oh my God, I can get pregnant whenever. And you really can only get pregnant six days out of your, your cycle. Question on that though, because I know everyone then is like tracking ovulation and, oh, I'm ovulating. So let's have sex. But you're saying yeah. like that when you're ovulating, that's like the, the last day, like it was really those days leading up to ovulation. Exactly. Yeah. And so, yeah. So when you're tracking your ovulation, you're really looking for your luteinizing hormone surge or your LH surge. And that precedes ovulation by anywhere from 12 to 24 or 36 hours. So you're really square in the middle of that fertile window, which is really going to close on when you actually ovulate. Because the egg will only survive for about 24 hours. And sperm really has to be in your female reproductive tract to wait to fertilize the egg when it's released. So the, the game of like maximizing fertility is really to make sure you have sperm in, you know, in your uterus, in your fallopian tube when the egg is released to try and meet it and fertilize it. So you really want to find that fertile window. And the way you do that, there are a couple methods. You know, the, the, the most accessible one to everyone is, is cervical mucus tracking. And cervical mucus is just, you know, vaginal discharge. It's, it's produced by your cervix. So the easiest way to do this is to just look at the consistency, the texture and the color of your cervical mucus. And this will actually change throughout your reproductive cycle. And right before ovulation, it will actually change in appearance and texture to look like an egg white. And that indicates that you're in your fertile window. And it's actually an, an adaptive behavior that we have. And so fertile cervical mucus is, is actually, um, most beneficial to sort of like wicking up sperm and placing them in your, in your body. And so sperm actually travel up it very, very quickly. And so it's your body's way of sort of saying like, Hey, sperm, like get in here very quickly to try and fertilize an egg. So if you can learn to like, find it, it's a good way of noticing that you're in your fertile window. Okay. How long do sperm stay alive inside of us? Sperm are really hardy in comparison to eggs. So they can survive up to five to six days inside of your reproductive system. So that's why this this fertile window is actually five to six days because sperm that are actually deposited inside the fallopian tube up to five to six days before ovulation will actually survive there until you ovulate. Okay. Okay. Pretty amazing. Yeah. All right. So I have a, um, a little sidebar question cause I'm, I've just been curious about this. So yeah. if you're on some form of hormonal birth control, yep. is that change? Cause I've read a couple different things on what exactly it's doing to prevent pregnancy. One is that it changes yeah. the, the mucus. So it's, I guess, no longer kind of sperm friendly, like, Hey, come on, come up, come on yeah, up here. Yeah. And then does it also prevent the release of an egg? Yes, it does both. You're okay. Correct. And it depends on the type of birth control, but hormonal contraception, um, does prevent ovulation. So yes. See, and I feel like that's something that not a lot of women know. Yeah, probably not. I mean, granted that's with regular use of birth control. 
So, you know, if you don't take it appropriately, you can actually ovulate while on it. But if you do take it appropriately, it should prevent you from ovulating. So you should not be able to get pregnant. Okay. And all right. So we're born with like, we have our set number of a gajillion eggs or whatever in our ovaries, like from the get go, right? Like we've got that stockpile. Like we're not producing them. Like men are constantly producing sperm. Correct. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. You're, you're set with, you get a fixed number and you don't, unfortunately don't get to make any more. Yeah. Okay. So if you are on hormonal birth control for a long period of time and those eggs, let's assume you're taking it correctly, which none of us do, but, and so you're yeah. not releasing those eggs when you go off of it and you're like, okay, I want to have a baby now. Does that aid in fertility because you've got more eggs in there or does that matter? Yeah, I think this is an interesting question. So the way this works is that you have a set number of eggs you're going to have for your life. And it's not like you can actually bank them if you don't ovulate. And what will happen nonetheless is that your egg quality will decrease over time. And this will happen as you age. And so it's unfortunately biology doesn't work that way. And so you'll still hit menopause, which is the point at which you'll run out of eggs for, you know, the rest of your life at the same time you're, you're going to hit menopause by your biology is going to be destined to do so. So unfortunately it would be great if you could like trick your body to do that way, but it it just doesn't work like that. Yeah. Um, I feel like that almost like doesn't make sense though. Cause let's say I've got a set number of eggs and I was on, I'm, I'm no longer on hormonal birth control, but I was for say 15 years of my life. And assuming I was taking it correctly and not releasing an egg, you would think that buys me extra time on the back end, but you're saying it doesn't. Yeah. So you would think that that would actually happen. But what it turns out is that eggs experience a constant rate of atresia, which is the generation or death of ovarian follicles. And this happens whether or not ovulation is being suppressed from outside factors such as hormonal contraception. Um, so there really is no way to delay menopause and it can't be sped up or slowed down by external factors. Oh, okay. So that makes sense. So it's not necessarily, okay. So the running out of eggs is kind of one way to look at it, but it's like the health of the eggs are deteriorating with time, regardless of what's going, which I guess why then fertility kind of decreases with age. Yeah, so there's two there's two things um, that determine your ability to conceive your egg quality, which is really the genetic quality of your eggs, which deteriorates over time, and your egg number, which also decreases as you age. And whether or not your eggs are actually being ovulated, the egg number decreases over time because the the follicles that are inside your ovary that are going to be recruited every month to ovulate will still actually die whether or not they're actually ovulated. Okay. All right. That, that makes sense. Then I was told by a doctor that our egg health doesn't really start to deteriorate until age 35. Is that about kind of the standard line of thinking? So if if you look at a plot of miscarriage rate by age, you really see this like very sharp exponential increase at age 35 in the rate of miscarriage. And that's really thought to underlie the fact that your eggs around age 35 start undergoing genetic degeneration. 
that's because most miscarriages are caused by a genetic abnormality in the embryo. And so that underlies this very sharp miscarriage rate that we see go up at age 35. So your doctor was right. Like at around age 35 is when you normally start seeing this degradation in egg quality. But it does happen very slowly before that. At age 35 is really when you see a very sharp increase. Okay. All right. That's upsetting, but also interesting. Although I I had... um... I had this conversation with my doctor when I was in my earlier thirties and cause I was very, very single at the time. And I was like, should I be looking at freezing my eggs? Um, yeah. and then I since just recently got a whole lecture from a friend of mine who's the same age and tried to get pregnant with her husband and good. And she just was telling me, freeze your eggs, freeze your eggs, freeze your eggs. And I'm not sure I'm going to go that route, but it was kind of this another wake up moment of like, Oh wow. I'm at that age where my eggs are starting to be like, okay, bye. <laughs> I know it's funny. 35 creeps up on you very, very quickly. I'm 35 now. And when I was 30, when I first started um, trying to conceive my first daughter, I was like, that's so far away. I'll never get there. And then when I just did IVF, I was 34 and I was like, Oh my gosh, half of my embryos were aneuploid, meaning they had the wrong number of chromosomes. And I was like, wow, you know, that 35 year old mark really catches up to you. Oh, jeez, so, Great. So, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm staring 36 down in the face. So this is a, uh, <laughs> we'll see. Um, yeah. Okay. So let's get back to, to fertility. So what are the common factors that impact our fertility in like a negative way? So common lifestyle factors that people have studied that can impact your fertility would be stress. So a 12-month perspective observational study measured the level of stress in women attempting to get pregnant naturally. Um, And they actually measured an indicator of stress in women's saliva called alpha amylase. And they found that women with the highest baseline level of stress were more than twice as likely to experience infertility. And I think this is a good, you know, reminder that Although it can feel like your brain is disconnected from your uterus at times, that's actually not true. And so this study really, you know, reminds us that it's important to keep up self-care and mind-body wellness during the trying to conceive process. So I'm not, I'm not surprised by that because I, I know stress has the ability to just wreak havoc on us physically, yet we seem to still think it's just like a mental thing. Um, but the mind and body are connected, but So is there research that explains what exactly it's doing to us on the fertility end? Like, is it messing with the ability for an egg to implant? Are we, um, is it make a more unfriendly environment for the sperm? Like, what is it, what's it doing? Yeah, the study didn't actually dive any further into that. This is just a correlative study. So we don't know. And these women were ovulating naturally. So you know, we, we don't actually know any more than this yet, but all of those things could be true. So the egg could have trouble implanting, maybe the unit environment's not, you know, optimal, but at this time we don't really know yet. All right. Yeah. That's just, yeah, that's fascinating. Okay. So stress is one thing. What's another yep. one? So another big one is excessive alcohol or recreational drug usage is another thing that's correlated with infertility. So it's important to really make sure that you're curbing those back during trying to conceive. And I'm not talking about like having a glass of wine with dinner. That's totally fine. But really excessive alcohol or drug use during trying to conceive is not a good idea. Okay. What about excessive alcohol use 10 years prior to trying to conceive? No, that is totally fine. 
yeah, I know. We're all worried about like, did when we have our party days and, you know, in our twenties, is that going to come back to hurt us? And, and no, you know, that's not what I'm talking about. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You're fine. Right, cool. College, college <laughs> is not going to come back to hurt you when you're in your thirties trying to get pregnant. Yeah. Okay. All right. Good to know. And for anyone yeah, in college listening, have fun. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're okay. Don't worry about it. Okay, cool. Um, what else? So, um, another one that's been shown is excessive caffeine use. So, and again, I'm not talking about a cup of coffee, but if you're having five or six cups of coffee a day, that's a bad idea. So, um, excessive caffeine use has been correlated with a higher rate of miscarriage and an increased rate of infertility. So that's another one. That's not a good idea. Is that same with just while you're trying to conceive or if that's yes. just part of your lifestyle in general? Okay. While yeah. You're while to you're trying to conceive. Yeah. And these are all things that are studied while you're trying to conceive. So these are observational studies that are followed over a 12 month or longer period when, you know, a woman is trying to conceive. Are there yeah. any studies that show any culprits in infertility of, of lifestyle factors prior to? to trying to conceive like things, um, things we ate frequently, or I imagine I'm going to imagine smoking. Yeah. Smoking is definitely a bad one as well. That's a good question. Yeah. So smoking during, you know, trying to conceive bad idea and smoking is really one of these things that's bad for almost everything. We don't really understand the mechanisms of subfertility in smokers. Numerous studies have linked smoking to early menopause. So we think that cigarette causes premature depletion of ovarian reserves. So this would be the pool of oocytes that are available to ovulate. And we also think that it contributes to premature ovarian aging. So, you know, there are a lot of reasons that we have hypothesized that account for subfertility in smokers, but we don't exactly know. And because of that, we don't know exactly how long smoking can affect your your fertility. So um, it's possible, but we don't exact we don't really know yet. Right. So pretty much, if you smoked for you know I don't know maybe some of your twenties, college into your twenties, then you quit. You're trying to conceive. Like basically, don't stress out about the fact that you used to be a smoker because maybe it will impact it, but maybe it won't. Yeah. And also you, there's nothing you can do about it. So the best right. thing you could do is stop smoking. Now, if you're smoking, that will increase your likelihood of trying to conceive. Um, okay. But yeah, there's no use in stressing over something you have no control over for sure. Okay. Yeah. Cause I'm just curious. Cause like, there's all this stuff out there right now, say like with gut health. So that's like a big thing and like inflammation in the gut and you know, that it's very specific and targeted over like who is maybe sensitive to gluten, who's sensitive to dairy and just you know, how, like the importance of the, the, the ratio in your gut bacteria and how that's then messing with your hormones and like the rest of your body. So I'm just wondering if, or where that plays into the fertility aspect of things, because if you are say, I don't know, inflammation in your gut or if you're unhealthy in general, is that going to impact your ability to conceive? Yeah. So Dairy and gluten consumption in the context of, you know, gluten in the context of untreated celiac disease is correlated with pregnancy loss and infertility. But in the context of non-celiac gluten sensitivity, there's been no studies on its effects on fertility. Um, and same with dairy. So from a scientific perspective, we, we don't know. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not to say that there may be, you know, there may be some correlation, but no one studied it yet. So we can't say anything conclusively. Okay. I'm sure those yeah. studies will come just cause I don't know. There's just so much stuff out there now with like all the gut health and diet and, and it's exciting, but I also find it very frustrating because it appears to be super individualized of like what's maybe quote unquote bad for me and causes inflammation for me might be fine for you. And so then it gets to be where there's just no easy answer for what is necessarily best for your body. And so then if that is impacting fertility, it just, I don't know, it makes it all so much more complicated. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think we do know that there are big, important things that you shouldn't do when you're trying to conceive, right? So try to minimize stress, no excessive alcohol use, do not smoke. Try the one thing that I haven't actually talked about, which is you should minimize your exposure to endocrine disruptors in your environment. So parabens, phthalates, or other other endocrine disruptors, which are chemicals that can mimic hormones within the body, and they can be found in cosmetics or preservatives in your food. Those have actually been correlated with reduction in fertility and lower ovarian reserve or lower likelihood in live birth following IVF. And so that's important, actually, and you can control that and reduce your exposure. And so those are things that you can do. And we we know we have solid data showing that these are factors that can affect your fertility. And so these are like big, big levers that you can pull. And so those are those are very those are good things to do. We have data on them. It's solid. And, you know, these other things like probiotics, prebiotics, gluten consumption, dairy consumption, you know, we don't have data on those things yet, so they may or may not be correlated. And if it makes a big difference for you to do it, then do it. But from a scientific or medical perspective, we can't really speak on it yet. Gotcha. Okay. I love that you brought up the endocrine disruptors, though, because I think yeah. that is just like huge. And it was a couple years ago, I started to switch over pretty much everything, you know, started with basics of like, oh, okay, body wash, shampoo, and then got into makeup and face cream and, and, you know, started buying even like the BPA free plastic. And it's just, it's really upsetting to think about the crap that is like in the products we've been using for the majority of our lives that is not, is not good for us. So is that one of those things like is there any damage already done if we've been using some of these kind of mainstream borderline toxic products for 15, 20 years? Or is it another thing that if we cut it out of our system or cut it out of our, our routine when trying to get pregnant, you'll be okay? Yeah. So the way these studies are done, they're they're actually looking at women when they're trying to conceive. So it's hard to say, hey, you did uh. You've, you've, you know, you've had this higher level of consumption in the past and it's correlated with this in the future. So, you know, by the study design, it's hard to actually talk about past, you know, exposure indicating reduction in the future, reduced fertility in the future. But we do know that current exposure will reduce your fertility. So it, it may, you know, past exposure may, may reduce your fertility in the future. So it, we know it's bad. So what I would say is, hey, if you can reduce your exposure, that's always good. And, you know, if you can always reduce your exposure, that's always better. So BPA, phthalates, another big one is air pollution. If you live near a highway, that's bad. Like get an air purifier, try and reduce your air pollution. 
parabens in cosmetics, preservatives, um, and even pesticides. So pesticides, fruits and vegetables, like dirtiest dozen produce, that's been even showed to have a lower semen quality in men, a higher risk of pregnancy loss women. These are things that are environmental toxins that you can try and reduce. So do that if you can. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I hear you on the, on the study design and that it, that's not necessarily what it's looking for, but I would, yeah. I would think my completely um, uneducated assumption would be that it just makes sense though. Like if we're using these things for long periods of time that are bad for us, it could have an impact on yeah, trying to conceive. Yeah. It's de- well, it definitely will have an impact during your exposure. That's what we know. You know, your body is a pretty amazing system and it, it has, you know, there's homeostasis, which means it, it has the ab- ability to self-regulate and correct. So it's possible that it might not have a long-term effect. It's also possible that it does. It'd be nice if it didn't have a long-term effect because, mm-hmm. you know, it'd be nice to think that you could heal from your exposure, but it's possible that you do have a long-term effect. So it's good to to make sure that you limit your exposure when you can. Okay. What about, um, have there been any studies in terms of... Uh, tampons. So like all this stuff has come out now about the different like bleach and chemicals that are harmful that are been in, you know, tampons and and pads and these menstrual products we've all been using like for years. Have there been any studies on like the prolonged use of, of tampons on fertility? These are really new. These, these tampons that are chemical free or that claim they're chemical free so it's going to take us time to understand the effects. Um, and there really haven't been any studies on different chemicals and tampons and their effect on fertility. One thing we do know is that toxic shock syndrome, which is a, um, a dangerous infection that you can get as a risk of prolonged use of, of, of tampons and leaving them in longer than you're supposed to, is still a risk independent of tampon type. So, you know, you should really follow the instructions of use when you use tampons. But as again, we don't really have any current studies on this. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, because there's nothing to compare it to. Like the right. people using tampons, if they're the ones that are the unbleached or organic cotton or whatever versus the mainstream stuff we grew up with, like there's no way to really compare and when it comes to fertility. Okay, I get that. Yeah. I know that if, you know, if a tampon had any of the previous endocrine disruptors that I just spoke about in them, then yes, that wouldn't be good for fertility. Okay. I was just curious about that. Cause like, I, I don't, I had this wake up moment a couple years ago. And I'm like, huh? I'm like, they bleach these. I'm like, I don't know that I want to be putting bleach up there. And so switch to like a natural yeah. cot or organic cotton. And then ultimately ended up moving to the menstrual cup. Cause I figured putting cotton up there was maybe not good regardless. Yeah. It's also better for the environment, less waste. And it ends up actually being cheaper because you're yep. not buying tampons every month. Yep. Um, okay. That's a lot of the stuff of what is hurting us on the fertility end. Are there things that we could be doing to increase fertility while we're trying to conceive or even just things that have shown kind of make you healthier in general for conception purposes? Yeah. So I think the, the number one thing when you're trying to get pregnant is to have lots of sex. Um, <laughs> yeah, hear I that know, ladies. <laughs> yeah. Just have, it's really the number one thing. And number two is try to have lots of sex in your fertile window when you're ovulating. 
And to do that, you have to figure out when you're ovulating. So the the way to do that, number one, cervical mucus tracking. Number two, use ovulation tests. Um, We sell them at Natalist. These are urine-based tests that you can urinate on. They detect the level of luteinizing hormone in your urine. And when the test gives you a positive result, you will be ovulating within 10, you know, 12 to 24 hours, which means it's time to have sex. You are in your fertile window. That's another easy way to determine when you're in your fertile window. But basically, those are the two most important things to do is have sex, have it in your fertile window. The other important thing to do is to start a prenatal nutrition routine right when you start trying to conceive. Um, at Natalist, we have the duo one and two. And this is really important because most women don't necessarily know that they're pregnant until, you know, the eight, sometimes until the eight weeks or even in their, in the entirety of their first trimester. And it's really important that you have proper prenatal nutrition. And if you don't know until your end of your first trimester that you're pregnant, you will have neglected to provide your baby with those nutrients until you're already in your second trimester. So start it right when you're trying to conceive and then you just set it and forget it. And two other things you can do are just slight environmental modifications, avoid endocrine disruptors, phthalates, BPA, parabens, and personal care products and cosmetics. And the other thing you can do is eat organic when possible, especially in the dirtiest dozen produce. And then what other things we talked about before, you know, avoid excessive alcohol usage, limit caffeine intake to a cup of coffee a day, and stop smoking if you are smoking. Okay, what about men? Do they have the same guidelines and advice? Or is their situation different? Yeah, men really get off easy in this one. It's kind of unfair. Um, <laughs> because they're they producing are, sperm just like, you know, a mile a minute. Yeah, they really are. I mean, if it, it really is not. A, yeah, it's unfair. Um, and <laughs> sperm are really, you know, you continually make sperm. You don't have to worry about timing. Sperm don't have a fertile window. They make millions and millions and millions of sperm. And they're just a lot hardier. So, yeah, I mean, smoking is bad for sperm count. Excessive alcohol use is bad for sperm count. But other than that, they don't need a prenatal vitamin. It's really a lot easier for guys than it is for girls. Okay. I saw that you guys just came out with a a fertility-friendly lube that says, unlike other lubricants, it will not harm or slow down sperm. So I'm just curious, like, what makes it different or what is in other lubricants that could harm or slow down sperm? Yeah. So this is an interesting one. The FDA actually has two classes of lubricants. The first, like, standard lubricant class is called a personal lubricant. And then this other lubricant class, which is specifically for people trying to conceive, is called fertility-friendly lubricants. And they meet the same standards as personal lubricants, but they go through an additional batch of testing to make sure they will not harm sperm, eggs, or embryos. And they need they need to meet particular standards for osmolality, which is the concentration of particular substances in the lubricant, viscosity, which is the thickness, and pH. And all those things need to be just right for sperm to be happy. And regular lubricants aren't designed for this when they're made. So when sperm comes into contact with a standard lubricant, they can actually die or or not spin properly. And you really want to when you're trying to conceive, you really want to make sure that your lubricant's not fighting your goal. To do that, you really want to make sure you're using a sperm-friendly lubricant. 
All right. That, that's interesting that there's two different classifications. I did not know that. Okay. I want to end with something like a little bit fun in terms of, I love this. You guys have this whole conception 101 book and the different fertility myths. So yeah. turns out that, I mean, this is not surprising, but it's still entertaining. Sitting with your legs up isn't necessarily going to help keep the sperm in there moving in the right direction. Yes. It's pretty funny. We always joke that Putting your legs up in the air after sex is a pretty fun and restorative yoga pose, but will not help you when you're trying to conceive. And, you know, sperm deposited at the cervix are actually found in the fallopian tube within 15 minutes. So even though this could be a fun one, it won't help you when you're trying to conceive. So this one's a myth. Okay. But I, I almost started to believe it for a minute though, because now I'm going to get like a little bit graphic, but you know, after you have sex and then you go pee, because that's what we've all been told to do. Like, yeah, no you UTIs. Know, yeah. yeah, exactly. Like there, um, some of the, the semen will sometimes come back out, like just, you know, comes back out. So are you then losing sperm or is that the extra mucus stuff? And so the sperm are already off and running and that's just kind of the vehicle of what, of how they got there. Yeah. I mean, the sperm already are off and running. I mean, there's a lot of sperm. You only need one. So, you know, there's just extra hanging around and the sperm that's going to get there and do its job has already, already got, is already on its way to getting there. Okay. Another thing we hear a lot is when people are trying to conceive that, you know, they tell their, their husband, boyfriend, partner, whoever, they want to like save on having sex until they're in that window or like don't masturbate until they're in that window. Cause they kind of want to yeah. stockpile the sperm. Is that a myth as well? Yep, that's a myth too. No need to stockpile. Again, men really get off easy here, but they are really good producers of sperm. There's no need to worry about that. They, you know, having sex every day or every other day during your fertile window is equally as effective and there's really no need to worry about that. Okay. Next one is like the the birth control cleanse. And I did not even know. I mean, I I heard or I've been told like if you're gonna if you're on hormonal birth control you know go off of it and then your body might or there might be need some time to quote-unquote get it out of your system but I wasn't aware that people actually make these like product cleanses that's supposed to do that is that just all a bunch of just bs yeah I mean this is this is basically a bunch of bs yeah so don't um, waste your money yeah save your money put it towards a prenatal vitamin instead and, you know, your body's perfectly capable of having your cycle restart by itself. The hormones in hormonal contraception leave your body on its own. Your cycle will restart. And some, you know, women get pregnant even before they get their first period after they stop hormonal contraception. So save your money. Don't go buy a birth control cans. There's no data that this does absolutely anything. Okay. And same with um, the different positions. That does not make make a difference either. Yeah, yeah. There's some studies done on this. All sex positions are equal in the eyes of your egg <laughs> and sperm meeting each other. They, you know, they're all equally as effective. I joke with Dr. Nas, our chief medical advisor. She she always wants me to emphasize like positions don't matter, but you need to make sure you're having vaginal intercourse. So make sure you're <laughs> going in the right place. But other than that, it's all good. Yeah. Okay. That is an important distinction. Yes. And um, that's the important distinction, but the sex position doesn't matter. 
Yeah. Okay. I just thought of, of one more question that I wanted to ask you before I let you go. And that's, I, I know a lot of people, not a lot of people, but several who had issues getting pregnant the first time, like had to do IUI or even IVF and then get pregnant naturally surprisingly quick the second time. Is there any research or studies that show why that happens? Like, is it just a matter of our, our bodies like, oh, okay, I know how to do this now, like no problem second go around or, or what's going on there? Yeah, you know, I feel like I have anecdotal experiences with this too. Like, you know, I've had friends that had IVF the first time around and then they're, they're pregnant with their second baby naturally. But I don't know of any studies on this off the top of my head. Well, hopefully there's there's just more studies to come and we learn more about our, our bodies in this process. And I, I applaud companies like Natalis for putting it out there and talking about it more and really helping women through the process so they don't feel as alone or like there's some something wrong with them, that it is more complicated than we were all taught, you know, when we were in sex ed, just being terrified that if you even get close to a penis, you'll get pregnant. So I, (laughs) I do, I do applaud you guys for what you're doing. Um, Tell everyone where they can get more information on the company and the products and where they can follow you guys and all of that. Great. So we'd be so happy. Come check us out. Natalist.com. N-A-T-A-L-I-S-T.com. You can find us there. We also have a great learn section where you can just find education about your journey to pregnancy too. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It was great. All right. That's it for this week. I hope you guys enjoyed this conversation and learned something. I know that I definitely did. And I just want to thank Dr. Liz and Natalist for sharing their insight with us and for all the work they're doing to really remove all of the stigmas and just help couples who might be struggling with trying to conceive, get through that process and know that they're not alone. I think that is wonderful work and I very much applaud them. If you are not already, please follow the podcast on Facebook or Instagram. We are at the better you podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget about the giveaway. It runs through the end of March. So there is still time to enter. Listen to episode 34 and Yeah, it will not be too long until you're hearing from me again next Tuesday. So we're going Tuesdays and Thursdays in the time being to just help everybody get through all of this quarantine and social distancing and all the stress and anxiety that is coming with these super crazy uncertain times that we are currently in. So that is it for this week. I will see you all next week. 